Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Friday, June 19th. I wanted to have a little bit of fun on today's podcast because it has been such a busy week throughout the tennis world. So many storylines for us to continue to monitor here at Cracked Rackets. Of course, the U.S. Open, really the storyline we're all paying the closest attention to. They announced their details this week for what a potential U.S. Open in 2020 is going to look like. And as we've said all week long on our multiple shows, of course, there are about two, two and a half months until that start date for the tournament would actually get here and a lot can change between now and then but as of right now it seems to be all systems go for the U.S. Open and you know as tennis fans probably mixed feelings towards that announcement of course I think I speak for all of us when I say we miss live tennis we miss sanctioned ATP WTA ITF events but we also all have so many questions surrounding this event they the U.S. Open announced formally you know there will be no qualifying no wheelchair no juniors no uh, I think no no mixed doubles either. It'll be a condensed doubles draw and of course, they're going to play Cincinnati at the Billie Jean King Stadium, uh, Billie Jean King Center, excuse me, uh, the week before the U.S. Open. And so we've heard all week long from players who aren't going to get in off of their ranking, who would have had qualifying at the U.S. Open, who would have used that as their opportunity to maybe break through or begin their ascension up the rankings, or if they're 26, 27, 28 years old, get that big payday they've been chasing for so long, would have had that opportunity by playing qualifying. And of course, all of these players work all year long, grinding at the futures, the challengers level, to try and get into that 100 to 225 range so that they can guarantee themselves a play in Grand Slam qualifying, uh, they're not happy with this decision. And even if the USTA is able to pay uh, the uh, so the announced $10,000 to each player that would have been able to participate under normal circumstances, you know, for players, it's the opportunity cost. Yes, the money helps, uh, but they're not going to have that many more opportunities potentially to play a Grand Slam, certainly if their rankings fall off, their results fall off. And so, you know, the loss of that opportunity means more to some than just getting a $10,000 paycheck. And so it's been a fascinating dynamic to monitor all week long. And of course, it was a two great shot podcast week. I started out the week going on Gil Gross's Monday Match Analysis YouTube show. We turned that appearance into a podcast on our great shot podcast feed uh, because it's always such a good time for me when I get to chat with Gil. And then, you know, we learned further details during that U.S. Open press conference. So of course, I had to bring on New York Times writer, host of the No Challenges Remaining podcast and frequent guest here on our Crack Rackets podcast, Ben Rothenberg on the show, to talk about those details, to talk about, you know, the player activism we've all seen in the wake of the tragic killing of George Floyd, and, you know, what that might mean for the sport moving forward. Tennis, particularly 
over the past 15 years may not have had that many, you know, outspoken social advocates. You know, of course, what Serena, what Venus, what, you know, many others have done still admirable, but you really look through tennis history and players like Billie Jean King, Arthur Ashe, Martina Navratilova, some of the greatest champions in, you know, society's history for equal rights, for social justice, for social equality. Uh, they they existed within tennis. They used their platforms uh, to strive for that equality. And of course, you know, again, there are modern examples now, but we see this young generation, people like Coco Gauff and Naomi Osaka, beginning to step up uh, and use their platforms to try and you know promote these causes that all of us can get behind, all of us can rally around and begin to believe in, and you know, hopefully uh, implement change in our society. And so, you know, Ben and I talk about that as well. We talk about and what that means for tennis. Movement. Moving forward, we talk about some of the exhibitions we're seeing. It's, you know, both fascinating conversations, both of which you can find on the Great Shot podcast feed. Uh, and then also, of course, uh, you know, cracked interviews-wise this week, we're still rocking and rolling. We had Sam Riffis, Oliver Crawford of the University of Florida men's tennis team, both players who found themselves at the top of the men's college tennis division one game, both players who certainly uh, harbor pro aspirations. And so, you know, again, a lot going on right now in the tennis world. We are trying to keep you guys up to date on all things at all levels. And then it was also pretty cool for me. You know, I got to break a little bit of news myself yesterday uh, reporting that Oracle has made the decision to discontinue the Oracle Pro Series, the Oracle Challenger uh, events. Uh, and, you know, I talk a little bit about, I want to talk a little bit about the implications of that decision on today's podcast before we get to, again, the fun part, because there is some news I want to cover. I just said I wanted to keep today fun. I do have a little bit of news to get to first, and then I want to get to my conversation, today's guest, founder of of the Big Three Tennis account on Twitter, founder of the Big Three Tennis podcast as well. And, you know, the Big Three is a topic that captivates all of us. If you're a tennis fan, if you have friends who are tennis fans, I assure, you know, I think I can speak for all of us, we've been in that circle, whether it's on the bench, at a changeover, we're hitting for fun, or, you know, for me, it's all aspects of life. I'm at the bar, I'm trying to, you know, meet a young lady, I'm trying to do whatever. Inevitably, this discussion will come out of me because I'm just a magnet for tennis talk, which is a good thing. has its perks. That's why I try to host podcasts because I'm going to be talking tennis anyways. Might as well do it into a microphone anyways. We've all had discussions with our friends about the big three. Who's the greatest in this era of men's tennis? Federer, Djokovic, Nadal. Well, our guest today, again, creator of at Big Three Tennis on Twitter, who's tweeted out so many fantastic statistics, so many different uh, analyses, analyses, plural, analysis, so many different forms of analysis we'll go with. Apologies for that. Uh, You know, breaking down this rivalry, breaking down the differences, what distinguishes each player from one another. And so I wanted to talk today to Nick Nemiroff, again, who created the Big Three Tennis account, created the Big Three Tennis podcast. He's also director of tennis at Court 16 in NYC, you know, talked to him about the inspiration behind this project. What are the arguments he, you know, that resonate to him the most when he makes the case for Federer, for Djokovic, Nadal, which of those three players' argument in particular resonates the most with him? And then, you know, of course, we all know the ins and outs of tennis Twitter. So what are the things he posts that receive the most vitriol? What are the things that can set off each of these fan groups the most? Uh, Just, it's a fascinating conversation. It's a really fun one as well. Something fun and some thinking for all of us to do as we head into the weekend. Of course, again, before we get to that conversation, I want to talk a little bit about the news going on right now in the tennis world to give you guys one last
podcast update. It's going to be a solid hour and a half podcast, I would say, maybe even a little bit longer today. So, you know, you can split it up amongst Friday, Saturday, Sunday, give you just a little piece of listening. Maybe you go grocery shopping one day, you get gas for the car the next day. You just got to get out of the house, go for a joyride away from the kids, away from the family for, you know, a solid 20, 25, 30 minutes. You can divide it into segments as well. But the reason we here at Crack Rackets are even ha- able to have any of these conversations, able to do these mini breaks day in, day out, is because of the support we get from our friends at Midwest Sports. And for more than 20 years, Midwest Sports has served as one of the world's premier tennis equipment suppliers because they offer a comprehensive selection of fast shipping tennis supplies that few retailers can match. They also have one of the largest in-stock inventories of tennis equipment online. Sorry, I just get choked up when I think about it because it's so beautiful that they have tens of thousands of products available for shipping from their automated warehouse directly to your front door. They value innovation and have personally tailored their products to highlight your skills on the court. Their well-trained staff are intimately familiar with tennis equipment and can help you find that perfect racket, perfect shoe, or perfect tennis clothing that is sure to put you ahead of the competition. Their selections of equipment are consistently first to market, and they pride themselves in stocking their warehouse with the newest products at the lowest prices. You can find all of these products, all of these incredible prices, by going to their website, MidwestSports.com. When you get there, you're going to want to buy yourself some stuff. It's inevitable. All of us tennis players are so excited to get back on the court, uh, but maybe we've run through our shoes. Maybe our racket strings are deader than dead. Maybe we just need to update our gear. You're still using that end code from 2004. And, like, come on, that's like six Roger Federer rackets ago. You can afford to upgrade at this point. You deserve to upgrade at this point. And you can save a little money in your pocket when you choose to upgrade by using our promo code CR15 at MidwestSports.com. Not only will you get an additional 15% off, you will also get free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75 as well as a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Ball. So go to MidwestSports.com, use that promo code CR15, 15% off your order. Let them know that we sent you there. We are so grateful from the support we get for from our friends at Midwest Sports. The least we can do is ask you to support them as well. We also ask that you go to check out our friends at aerobar.com. Check out their aero bars. It is the only tennis specific energy bar product out there. It's delicious. It's made with stuff that should properly fuel you out on the court. And if you don't believe me, listen to the testimonials we've had on our Getting to the Point Thursday mini break podcast thus far that we do with our friends from Aerobar. We've heard from people like Jay Berger, Michael Russell, Richard John Mensing, Bjorn Fertangelo this week. If Aerobar is good enough for them, I promise it is good enough for you. So go to Aerobar.com. Use the promo code CRACKED15, 15% off. Don't let your nutrition be the reason you are not making your return to the tennis court. Get yourself some aero bars today. All right, with that being said, just a couple of quick, again, news items before we get into the uh, before we get into my interview, I should say, with Nick Nemiroff. And, you know, again, the place I want to start and not to do, you know, self-indulge. Obviously, I have an ego. I think you're all aware of that. I think my parents would test, uh, you know, they would testify to that fact. And by the way, speaking of my parents, maybe he'll be listening through the first 11 minutes. I feel like anytime I exceed the 11-minute speaking mark, my dad usually checks out. Uh, but happy birthday to you, dad. I love you very much. Much. You may think we've forgotten, but again, June 19th, burnt into my brain. I know it is your birthday today. I love you. Thank you for the support, the encouragement, the uh, 
I suppose confidence to tell bad jokes. No one has the confidence to tell bad jokes quite like you, but that smile is just so captivating. So I will chuckle anyways, and I love you very much. So happy birthday to you anyways. I suppose my gift to him was the fact that I uh, was able to, you know, break my first story uh, that, that you know, was not yet publicly known uh, yesterday on I suppose crackrackets.com if you want to read the story, but I was able to release it into the tennis Twitter universe as well. Uh, and that was, as I uh, alluded to a little bit earlier in the podcast, the fact that Oracle, the Forbes 500 company, the multinational software giant, uh, confirmed to Crack Rackets yesterday that they plan to discontinue the Oracle Pro Series and Oracle Challenger Series effective immediately. And, you know, that decision led by a couple of factors. One, you know, it, in the midst of this global pandemic, it is becoming more clear each and every day how dire some of the financial situations will be for so many companies moving forward. Now, of course, you would think a, a conglomerate like Oracle somewhere, I think they were like 82 uh, on the Fortune 500 list in terms of size, success, revenue, all of these different metrics they use to measure of company in the world. Um, but for them, tennis just maybe seems no longer like a worthwhile uh, expenditure, at least to this degree. And you start to talk about what was the Oracle Pro Series. And hopefully you fans are a little bit aware of that because of the coverage we've given it over the years. You know, we were at the Oracle event in Ann Arbor, and I'm devastated to think that that Oracle Ann Arbor event may not happen again. Now, I know Coach Adam Steinberg. I know he's going to work his tail off to try and have that happen. But there are challenger events that were being played across the country, you know, the the ones in New Haven and the ones in, you know, uh, at the Futures event they sponsored at USC, the Challenger event I think they sponsored at UCLA, and what they do at Baylor, of course, as well, and just you Houston, and you can go across the globe and or across the country, excuse me, and you know the impact of this decision will be wide, wide felt and widespread because you know again in September of last year they announced the creation of that Oracle Pro Series. I'm, I'm just going to read again from this article I wrote, um, and by the way that quote while Oracle here's the quote from Oracle just to start here while Oracle continues to support tennis through its ongoing partnerships with the Intercollegiate Tennis Association Universal Tennis Rating and the BNP Paribas Open in Indian Wells we will no longer sponsor the Oracle Challenger Series and Oracle Pro Series that comment coming from Mindy Bach uh, senior Director of Oracle Corporate Communications. Now, again, the Oracle Pro Series was a schedule of more than 25 new ATP, WTA, and ITF professional tournaments at Translation Futures Challengers, 125K, and down-level events to be held across the United States over the course of 2019 and 2020. The series intended to increase new playing opportunities in the U.S. by more than 40% for pro tennis players and would have offered more than $1 million in prize money across Across its many events, as I mentioned, it comes. Uh, this decision comes among, uh, amidst financial hardships for corporations everywhere, uh, but it also comes following a change of leadership in Oracle. And we all can remember, you know, Mark Hurd, who former CEO, member of the Oracle Board of Directors, and one of tennis's biggest advocates, most passionate supporters. Maybe in in the game's history, you can date it back since its founding. I mean, in terms of the commitment, the financial resources he offered, and just even beyond that, the promotion of the game, his belief in tennis as a product that, if widespread, can bring joy and structure and discipline to so many across the country. 
Uh, unfortunately, Mark passed away in October, and you know I, I I write this in the piece as well. He spearheaded so many of the company's forays into the sport, and it was inevitable to wonder whether the software company would want to continue its level of relationship with tennis. Now, as I mentioned, their investments, oracles in the game expand beyond just the pro series. Uh, although, again, you talk about the loss of. 25-plus events for these players grinding at the Challengers and Futures circuit, uh, especially given the uncertainty, I suppose, now for the American players, um, that who knows when people are going to be able to travel uh, globally to play events again. Certainly, you know, you look at some of the numbers, and if you're another country, are you going to ban, You know, are you going to allow United, uh, American athletes into your country to participate, given the numbers in the U.S. compared to some of the numbers elsewhere? Uh, that's a decision that will be on the minds of many. And by the way, that's not a political statement. That's just a fact. There are travel bans still in place between different parts of the country because the virus is affecting different regions uh, more severely than others. And yes, of course, that partially has to do with government response. But we don't have to get into that. The point being so much uncertainty right now in the ITF uh, scheduling on the Challenger and Future Circuit. And, you know, we've gotten to see a sneak peek of both the ITF, the ATP, the WTA's tentative schedules moving forward. But that's the key word, tentative. And so to know that there won't be any Oracle events domestically, to know that those events won't be on the calendar moving forward as well, uh, that's a gut punch to not only the you know, countless numbers of players ranked outside the top 100 who were turning to those events, not just for prize money and for points, and but, you know, competition opportunities. Uh, but, you know, one thing about all of the tournament employees, the volunteers, the line judges, the facilities who get to host these events who, you know, they no longer have that opportunity. They no longer have those job opportunities. It's devastating. And again, I will emphasize Oracle planning as of right now to continue its partnership with the ITA, to continue uh, you know, to invest in the Universal Tennis Rating System, the UTR as it's, uh, the acronym as it's known. Um, and by the way, I have a comment in the piece from Tim Russell, CEO of the ITA, who says, quote, Oracle's a tremendous partner, and they have helped to strengthen and transform college tennis, including helping to create events of distinction. Oracle's presence has permeated throughout college tennis, especially in the area of the Oracle ITA ranking. And look, again, Oracle's committed to this relationship with the ITA for now, and talking to Tim, it sounds like the uh, Oracle's committed to this relationship with the ITA moving forward as well. Uh, but at this point, you never know. It seemed like they were really committed to the Oracle Pro Series event in February. And to their credit, they were. And who could have pre- predicted this, you know, confluence of events that you were, it's a global pandemic, which leads to economic downturn, but also at the exact moment when, you know, Mark Hurd is no longer a part of the Oracle team. Um, it's it's just crushing because Oracle was doing so much good for so many throughout the tennis community. And obviously, American tennis was probably the biggest uh, net beneficiary of, of these efforts. But across the globe, you know, these challenger events, these Oracle events, 25 more opportunities, millions in prize money, you know, points available as well. And now all of those opportunities are gone. And yeah, could they be filled? Will there be some events who maybe take the opening at the schedule to try their own event? Sure. Uh, But Oracle's commitment to tennis was widespread. And it's not just... Yes, you feel that the challenger in the pro series, but uh, you know now you start to worry. Like again, whether it's college tennis or just, I know Oracle's committed. Again, they said to Indian Wells as well, and that's Larry Ellison's baby, who of course uh, is the big wig at Oracle. Um, but it's just it it's a dark day for tennis, and you know again, 
we're all getting excited as tennis fans right now about the potential return of action in 2020. Uh, but these financial ramifications of this global pandemic moving forward on the sport, uh, there are going to be more announcements like this, and it's just it, it, it's never fun to get to do. Um, I do want to say a big thank you to Brett McCormick of Sports Business Journal and, of course, Ben Rothenberg of the New York Times, uh, two people I turned to while reporting this story just for a little bit of guidance, and they were both so kind to me. They didn't steal the story from me. They offered me advice. They kicked me in the butt to say, Alex, come on, come on, uh, because, you know, you see some of the response, and this was a story I think that people were aware of, but just no one was ready to confirm it. Um, I was ready to confirm it. The sources were good. The information was accurate, and that Oracle obviously confirmed the story speaks to that. Um, But I I do want to give a big thank you to those two for helping me in this reporting process. And by the way, if you want to hear further details, I mean, I know for a fact Brett McCormick is furthering to dig on the story to talk about the financial implications of this decision. Um, And, you know, we've seen players already come out, Noah Rubin, Mitchell Kruger, and others talk about, you know, why this Oracle decision, again, uh, just further emphasizes the need for tennis to restructure organizationally because right now and again we've had this debate so I'm not going to do this right now go listen to the other podcast we've done this week I want to get to the conversation with Nick Uh, but this is a big deal and again we continue to learn more about this and if you want to learn even more uh, go check out Brett's work for Sports Business Journal as well Um, a couple of other things and then we will get to my conversation with Nick talking talking about the schedule the Japan Tennis Association today announced the decision to cancel the Rakuten Open uh, which would have taken place October 5th to the 11th due to health and safety concerns surrounding the ongoing coronavirus. Uh, Guess what? That's not going to be the only one out there that gets canceled. But again, even as we see a tentative schedule, that's the key word, tentative. There are events that are still out there that can still be canceled. There are also events that can be put back on the schedule. And I hope one of those events that are is the U.S. Open wheelchair event because, you know, after hearing from Dylan Alcott, who if you guys don't know, one of, if not the greatest Grand Slam tennis player, a wheelchair player maybe ever, um, has talked about how disappointing it is to see this decision, how, you know, his quote is, it sets a really dangerous example for people all around the world that we, meaning people in wheelchairs, people that are disabled, are second-rate citizens, and we are not worth as much as our able-bodied counterparts. And if that argument doesn't resonate with you, the powerful, uh, how powerful that message is, I don't know what to tell you. I do know, and this is not, I'm not the only one who's going to say this, and again, I agree, sympathize, empathize, and would love, you know, would ideally the U.S. Open will put the wheelchair back on the schedule. But we're dealing with financial realities, and especially, again, it's just things had to be cut. This should not have been, this should, you know, if there's a next one up in the queue, uh, this the, the wheelchair event is it. But it's going to be impossible. I just I cannot emphasize this enough. It is going to be impossible for every fan, every wish, every desire, every ideal action to be taken. That's just not the financial reality tennis is living in right now. That being said, you know, if there's Cincinnati is open, Miami's open, Indian Wells is open. If we can find a facility within the country to host the U.S. Open wheelchair event simultaneously, even if it's not at the Billie Jean King Center, make that call immediately. 
Like, it, it, the USTA should be doing whatever's in its power, even if it means using the Orlando National Center. Why not use the Orlando National Training Center? It's opened again. Bring it down there. Have the event. This event should be held. This is their moment. And this this is the moment for wheelchair tennis is what I'm trying to say because, you know, how frequently are you watching wheelchair tennis? I'll tell you. For me, it's only at the Grand Slams. And I only know about it at the Grand Slams because they play every single event at the Grand Slams. They're not going to be playing every event at the Slams this year. This should be one of them that should be made a priority to have if possible because for wheelchair players, this is the biggest stage for them to compete on. And it shouldn't be taken. Uh, it's just... If at all, the USTA just, the lack of communication, the lack of a statement, the lack of an explanation is unacceptable. And so again, I if you haven't heard or listened to Dylan, please go do that. You can find him. He was on the Today Show. He's been on a bunch, he's been a bunch of different places. Uh, the Today Show in Australia, I should say, a bunch of different places. Um, it's just, it, it's unacceptable. And so, you know, if there's anything, again, this is a cause I think people should be hearing about. And so I did want to mention that. And I should say George Belshaw of the Metro uh, in, uh, you know, the uh, British publication has said, has reported that people such as Murray, Federer, Djokovic doing what they can to ensure that the wheelchair tennis event is put back on the U.S. Open schedules. Uh, so that's, again, excellent news to hear. Um, again, a couple of other things down the home stretch. Nick, I can hear you in the background. We are almost getting to your interview. But Dominic Team, another exhibition event. It's going to be him, Berrettini, Monfils, Rublev, Hachinov, Dimitrov, Chorich, Denis Novak. Sign me up. I'll be watching. Kitzbühel, July 7th to the 11th. That's a lock. World Team Tennis, now going to pay full salaries, not prorated portions, to any player who tests positive for COVID-19 during the season. They're going to have players get tested before traveling to West Virginia. That's obviously exceptional. And again, uh, this is why World Team Tennis is becoming more and more popular because all of these things we were curious about with the U.S. Open, uh, they've been up front with from the beginning. Payers are going to get played. Uh, payers are, players are going to get paid. Payers aren't going to get played. Excuse me. Players are going to get paid. Uh, they're going to be protected to the best of World Team Tennis's ability, which, again, can never guarantee 100%. Uh, but World Team Tennis is following every regulation, every monitor, you know, trying to in, uh, guarantee a safe environment. And so it's a win. And so shout out to Carlos Silva and the World Team Tennis team. They deserve all of the uh, credit that they have been receiving. And that is why, uh, again, the field for this year's season gets better and better. Um, all right, what else? We've got Adrian Tour, UT and Universal Tennis showdown this weekend if you're not ultimate universal excuse me ultimate tennis showdown if you're not watching it you should be you should also check out the documentary Wimbledon just relieve a short video it's dare to dream 20 years later relive Venus Williams remarkable journey to her first Wimbledon title um, obviously you know that is a story that many of us are familiar with I was only five years old so to get to relive the details in further depth uh, I was four years old actually to be specific when the Wimbledon was played uh, it was delightful to me, and again, I, I think people just forget how long Venus Williams has been this exceptional. That, that the longevity, she is the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar of tennis. I mean, it just deserves to be said. What four different decades? You know, top fifty player throughout the duration of her career. Obviously, when she was good, she was exceptional. Uh, you know, I'm saying in her prime, she was exceptional. Um, just 
an unbelievable career, a great story. Shout out to the Wimbledon team for that piece. Shout out to Matt Willis at the racket. Oh, as always, uh, you know, he continues to kill it with his content. Whenever he writes something, tennis fans should read it. He wrote a long piece on the modernization of tennis, how the game has changed, how it needs to change moving forward, how it stayed behind uh, when in other aspects it really should have evolved the way other sports have. It's a wonderful piece. I know all of you will enjoy it because you're listening to this podcast. Uh, So I know you all will enjoy that as well. Uh, But the thing I brought all of you here today to enjoy, a little bit of a debate. Let's get testy. Let's have some fun as we head into another weekend. And so the topic that can get any tennis fan going, your stance on the big three, Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, Roger Federer, who is the player you support and why. There is no one more well-versed in each and every one of those arguments than our guest today, who again is director of tennis at Court 16 in NYC and the creator of the at Big Three Tennis Twitter account and podcast, Nick Nemeroff. My conversation with him coming up right after this. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Joining us on the podcast today is the founder of one of my my favorite projects right now on tennis Twitter, and I think as tennis fans, we can all agree that no subject captivates the imaginations, frustrates fan bases, and brings out maybe the vitriol, the excitement, the best and the worst of the tennis community than the topic of the Big Three. And the man I am talking to today is the creator of the Big Three Tennis account on Twitter, at Big Three Tennis. He is also the director of tennis at Corsic. Court 16 in NYC, the host of the Big Three podcast, Nick Nemeroff. Nick, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited to do this. Oh, it is absolutely my pleasure. And let's just start with the obvious, the creator of the Big Three project. Do you agree with my assessment there that there is no topic that seems to set tennis fans off more than that one? Yeah, I definitely would, uh, would agree with that. I mean, you have three of the greatest of all times. The fan bases are so intense. They all have so many fans around the world. And, you know, they're the ones who play the most matches. So it's natural that they're gonna, you're going to get the most, um, you know, inflamed arguments and the most back and forth on Twitter specifically about this topic. So I definitely would agree with that. Yeah, no, and that's, again, why I'm such a big fan of that, of your work, and I know your work extends beyond that as well, and, you know, for so many of us, especially people my generation, I was born in 1995, I'm pretty sure you and I are similar in age range, I mean, through the duration of us being tennis fans, especially on the men's side, it's been... Roger, it's been Novak, it's been Rafa. On the women's side, for a lot of it for us, it's been Serena as well, but there does seem to have been more people who have emerged, more people who are able at least to break through in certain moments. Uh, But the big three is a topic that all of us can agree. Again, the successes of Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal really tell the story of the past 10, 15, maybe even 20 years in men's tennis. And so again, just to start off today's podcast, I want to say how big a fan I am of the project 
it and we've talked about it privately but I, I think it's perfect for this quarantine time period you know the amount of statistics you're generating just all of the interest it has been a huge benefit to the tennis twitter community so on behalf of all of us nick i'll start off by saying thank you thanks so much for that that's very generous and kind i appreciate that it's funny i know i started playing tennis in 2005 and when i started playing it was roger and rafa and then novak came along and ever since i've started to play tennis and follow it it's been these three guys and it's been a perfect activity for me during the quarantine period you know i started i'm sure you were going to probably ask me about this but you know I, I started the account last year and you know i kind of let it sit for a while and ever since you know we've gotten to this quarantine period i resumed it and it's been really cool to research interact with people and hear people's thoughts and it's been a really fascinating project and i'm looking forward to continuing it uh in the future Mm -hmm. And we look forward to seeing what the project turns into. Now, before we get too in-depth on the big three, you sort of mentioned there you started playing tennis in 2005. And for our listeners who don't know about you, about your background with tennis, mm -hmm. you know, how did you get involved in the sport? Why did you make the decision? You know, what about it made you want to cover it uh, as part of, I suppose, the media? Yeah, it's a really pretty crazy story, actually. So growing up, I played soccer. Um before the age of 12, I literally never touched a tennis racket. My family was in a pretty bad hurricane in 2004. We live in Florida. That caused us to move a year later. I went to a summer camp that had all different activities. One of the activities was tennis, and I really loved it right away. I went to my local tennis club. I told my dad, like, I want to take a lesson, and I did. And from that moment, I stopped playing soccer, and I started playing tennis, and the rest was kind of history from there. And I haven't really looked back since. I've loved it since the first day. And that was how I got into tennis initially. Mm -hmm. And for you now, you know, director of tennis at Court 16 in NYC, mm -hmm. was that something you always saw yourself doing? Well, I taught tennis in high school. I played competitive tennis. I wasn't anything outstanding, but I also started writing about tennis when I was in high school as well. Um, because so my whole life was really centered around tennis. Once I went to college, I went to NYU and I went there thinking I wanted to do journalism. I didn't know if I wanted to write about tennis or I wanted to write about politics or maybe another topic. And I quickly realized that I did not like journalism as far as, you know, <laughs> reporting, reporting. I loved to write about tennis, but I didn't necessarily like, okay, I need to go interview people on the street. I know I didn't like that. So then I switched my major to politics and then um two years into nyu i realized wow what i really want to do is i really want to do something with tennis i actually almost left new york city i almost transferred colleges and at the last second i decided you know what i spent two years at nyu i'm gonna stay and then after that one month later i met my current boss at court 16 and i've been working there for now Almost in September will be six years. So I've been, I started, you know, the club opened in September of 2014. I was the first coach on my very first day. I had one lesson and now we have two clubs, one in Brooklyn and one in Long Island city. You know, we have a lot of members now. It's a very active and vibrant tennis community and it's been a, it's been a great ride and I really love teaching. So that's my story into teaching. No, that's awesome to hear. I definitely, if I scrolled back through my high school email account, uh, I would see an email from New York uh, or NYU men's tennis head coach Horace Choi. Um, I'm surprised. I feel like you, uh, the, you know, the NYU team, not not too bad. Pretty solid D3 squad. And obviously New mm -hmm. York, a pretty tennis-rich history, a uh, pretty tennis-rich city. 
Yes, absolutely. So I actually tried out for the team my freshman year, and I would say it was probably my lowest tennis moment ever. I did, I did, I did not make the team, and not that I not in the sense of that the team was bad or anything. The team was actually very good. Um, there was a lot of good players. I just was not pleased with my performance. And what ended up, I was planning to try out my sophomore year, but then at that point, I I, I started teaching. So I started teaching at um, a local uh, park in the city. Um, and uh, from there, I decided, you know what, it's better for me to make money. And uh, I, I, you know, I don't I don't want to play on the team. NYU is a pretty expensive school. And then my junior year, I started working at my current club, Court 16. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. I mean, yeah, I, I think we can, that can resonate with everyone. I think anyone who's played tennis has certainly also taught tennis at some point because uh, it makes a lot of sense for a lot of us. And again, it's such a fun sport. It's such a community-based sport, as you mentioned, especially uh, at the local level, whether it's just people who are going to the park to hit and it might be their first time or whether it's former college tennis players who you will see next to them three courts down on that same park. Uh, that really is one of the fun parts of tennis, especially because there are so many public courts available at least here in the states and so yeah it, it, it's really you know again it's a great sport and so you know i i see the appeal obviously i stayed in it as well and when you start to talk about again you you said you used to write about tennis a little bit uh as you started to write about it was it always the big three that was a topic you were gravitating to and you know you sort of got into it that you started the account last year but ultimately what was the origins you know for what were the the you know the origin story for this big three project, this big three podcast that you now host? So it wasn't always the big three. So when I first started writing about tennis, I just enjoyed writing was always one of my biggest passions. And I wanted to combine that with tennis. And I saw, you know, I'm sure you're aware of the site Bleacher Report. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 10 years ago, Bleacher Report, pretty much anyone could write for Bleacher Report. So I just started writing articles not only about tennis, I'm a big fan of basketball and football as well, but I started writing some basketball articles about my favorite team, the Sixers. And I combined that with tennis articles. And when I was in college on certain summers, um, I wrote for a few tennis publications and I wrote about the big three for sure, but there was definitely other topics as well. Um, definitely did not just center my focus on the big three. Uh, with this um, project, Last year, I realized, you know what, uh, I feel as if this is a, such a big topic, but no one's really created a Twitter account or a podcast about it. I felt like there was a hole that was there to be filled. And from there, that's how the project started. And, you know, I spent so much time of my life, I feel like in the last 15 years, really devoting myself to watching these three players. I mean, look, anyone who watches tennis, I love watching the ATV tour, the challenger tour, WTA. But if you're watching tennis, you're going to be seeing the big three a lot naturally. So from that perspective, it just seemed natural. Okay. I spent so much time focusing on these three guys uh, to, to start this project. And additionally, the other big thing that's happened is in my own personal teaching. I use Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic so much in my teaching to demonstrate to players what they need to be doing in their own games. So that's the origin of the project. No, I mean, 
it makes a lot of sense, right? The, again, we sort of said it at the top, but the big three have defined the past 15 years of men's tennis uh, at the very least. And, you know, whether it's a big three, whether at any point it was a big four, that's a discussion we can save for another time. But, you know, the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast today, A, to talk about, um, you know, these big three players to make the case. Obviously, it's such a fascinating topic, one we've talked about here on this podcast before. But for our listeners who aren't aware, the big three podcast now uh, is something you are doing as well as a part of this project. And again, there have been so many outstanding statistics. It's hard to keep track of all the fun ones coming out of the big three Twitter account. But in terms of the podcast aspect of this, can you preview what listeners could expect from that moving forward? Definitely. So in the near future, definitely going to have a podcast talking about strategy, talking about how the big three approach one another in their matches, how other players approach the big three, um, things that have worked, things that have not worked. So that's going to be one episode in the near future. Another episode is going to be talking about the best of the big three. So for instance, best slash worst. So for in, for instance, what was the best Federer Nadal match? What was the best Federer Djokovic match? What was Djokovic's toughest loss? What was Federer's best win? So that's going to be one that's coming up soon. Um, those are the two in the pipeline for now, but the podcast will definitely be, you know, I'll definitely be taking it through the summer um, and churning out a lot of episodes during the rest of the summer. Yeah. No, and I know I speak for all of us again when I say that's something we look forward to hearing from. Um, well, then, with that in mind, and again, all of you listeners can find uh, more of from this project. You can, you know, go read some of these statistics at the at Big Three Tennis on Twitter, and again, it's the Big Three uh, podcast uh, as well, which I believe you can find everywhere, right? Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to your pods. Yeah, it's everywhere. Yeah, no, that is definitely, and I think it's something you all will enjoy. And for our listeners who haven't listened yet, in the first episode, you make the case for why each player could be considered the greatest of all time, or at least the preliminary argument, right? You sort of list through and sift through Federer, Nadal, Djokovic. If you're going to make the case for one of them, here's where you start. Uh, I wanted to, you know, sort of go through that uh, today a little bit. And, you know, again, I highly recommend for our listeners, just go listen to the podcast because you you can hear Nick go on uh, in great depth about each of these players. But uh, let's start with, obviously, the guy who's been there the longest, Roger Federer. Uh, if you are going to make the case, Nick, that right, and by the way, this is a controversial topic. This is where people get upset. There's no nuance anymore in sports argument. You have to be firmly in one camp. It's impossible to say, well, they're actually all really good, or it's actually too soon to tell because Novak Djokovic has uh, you know, a little bit more time left in his career than the other two, or seemingly so. And, um, you know, that there's no place for that. You have to be a camp. You have to make your decision. You got to plant your flag from the get go. I know that is something you have tried to avoid doing. I'm going to try and get you to plant your flag today. But sure. first and yeah, but first and foremost, uh, again, let's make the case for each of these players. Go through it one by one. I want you to make the case. I may add some statistics that uh, just some bonus things for you at the end. But let's start with Roger Federer. If you are going to make the case that Roger Federer is the greatest player of all time, Nick, where do you start? So I'll first start by saying that in that podcast, it was the first episode. The main point of it was to not, like you're saying, was to not, you know, put, you know, put my flag somewhere, to not make a definitive statement, but just to lay out the facts in a calm, reasoned way, which is, I think, something that some people certainly struggle with. 
specifically on Twitter. So with Federer, the arguments that were made in the podcast is first, let's look at the major stats that are in his favor. Right now he has the most Grand Slam titles. He has the most Grand Slam semifinals, the most Grand Slam quarterfinals. He has the most weeks at number one, and he has the most titles. The second argument I made was about his sustained dominance. Consecutive Slam quarterfinals, consecutive Slam semifinals. Between 2005 and 2010, he made 18 of 19 Grand Slam finals. At one point, he had won 65 matches in a row on grass, 56 matches in a row on hard courts, most consecutive weeks at number one. I think you look at the years 2005. This is not something I actually talked about on the podcast, but something I've been thinking about more recently. But his seasons in 2005 and 2006 were pretty insane. If you look at 2005, he lost four matches. First one was Safin in the Australian Open. He had match points. Then he lost to um, Gasquet late uh, on clay, where he had match points and a third set tiebreaker. Then he lost in four sets to Nadal in the French Open um, semifinals. Yeah, 2005 semifinals. And then in the end of the year, his fourth loss was to Nalbandian, where he was up two sets to love. And then in the fifth set, he was up 6-5-30 love serving for the match. So the three of the four matches he lost, he was insanely close to winning. And then in 2006, he was 92-5, and five, and four of those losses were to Nadal. The, four, the fifth one was, was to Murray at a point in the year where he was pretty, you know, he was pretty exhausted um, because of the, the way the calendar had, had, had ran its course. Um, the next argument to make is the longevity. He has a 15-year gap between his first slam and his most recent slam. He's never retired from the match. He's the oldest ATP number one. Uh, he most recently gained the number one ranking 14 years after he first gained the ranking, number one ranking. Um, and then the other things I would say is that, that something that doesn't help him, but maybe you can use this as an argument, is you know his preferred surface, I think we would all say over the years, has been grass and indoor hardcourt. And there's certainly less of those tournaments um, and less of matches to be played on those surfaces than uh, there is for clay and, you know, the outdoor hard courts, which I don't think, obviously, that doesn't help Federer, um, you know, boost his stats. But despite that, he still has a very, you know, very padded resume. So those are the main arguments um, for Federer. And I think, you know, when you just, you know, when you watch him play, I think a lot of people have come and said to me on Twitter is like, you know, one reason I think Roger is the greatest is just, just when I watch him play. And, you know, that's obviously more, uh, of a subjective argument, but that's what a lot of people say. You know, he his, his way of playing is so beautiful and it's so elegant. Um, so that's something that I that I hear. I'm not I not sure I agree with that 100. percent But it's something that I hear very frequently, which is why I'm I'm mentioning it. Yeah, should I go on no. to Nadal, or should I just? Are we going to talk about better? Well, let me add a couple of things just to sure, that because you know you sort of referenced how good he was in '05 and '06, and I mean you talk about just his five-year prime in general and what he was able to accomplish during this time period. And I believe uh, these are his numbers here. I think he's player B uh, in these stats. I have over a five-year stretch of his career. A five-year stretch of his career. '04 to '08, he averaged a essentially a 
76 and 8 record. He was winning 90% of his matches for a five year stretch. He was playing, you know, about 17 events per season. He was making finals in 12 of them. That's about a 70% conversion rate. He's winning nine titles uh, per those 17 events. Again, that's winning over 50% of the events he plays. So, first of all, at seven of 10 events he shows up to, he's making a final. In those seven finals, he's winning, you know, uh, over half of them. It's unbelievable. You know, he averages 70, uh, or he wins 76 total top 10 wins during that five year prime. That's an average of 15.2 top 10 wins a year. That's exceptional. And so frequently, I think Federer, in the greatest of all time arguments, gets dinged for some reason because of the level of competition in the early 2000s. People hold it against him that, you know, multi time slam champions like Safin, like Hewitt, you know, a guy like Roddick or a guy when he's trying to break through, I suppose, players like Carlos Moya or the Gaston Gaudios or the Juan Carlos Ferreros of the world. Uh, for some reason, people just seem to say that, well, Nadal had it harder. Djokovic had it harder because they had to go through each other mm-hmm. plus Federer and then Murray and Wawrinka. And, you know, those guys are just seem to be held in higher esteem than some of Federer's early 2000s competition. Uh, but it's worth noting, you want to ding him for the level of competition. It's not even worthwhile because Federer was winning, by the way, again, you know, 90% of his matches during the prime of his career. And then as you mentioned, the longevity, he's able to extend it an entire another decade, right? He's playing pro matches now across four different decades. That's stunning. You know, that's just outstanding. Yeah, I never thought of that. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And by the way, Roger Federer, and uh, we'll get to someone's argument later, and it's one I think that resonates with me. But if you look for Roger Federer, uh, he was the first player in the first, and now one of only two, but the first in the open era to reach 200 top 10 wins over the course of his career. 200. He is 224 and 123 against top 10 players. He has 10 wins over players who have been ranked number one in the world. And then, of course, given the age gap, the fact fact that it's, you know, 16-24 head-to-head against Nadal. Yes, he's trailing, uh, but, you know, Federer now has won, and I'm looking at the numbers here, three, four, five, six. Uh, he has won seven of their last eight matches. Like, that's crazy. That he was able to flip the script on Rafa late in their career, that should mean something. Also, you know, against Djokovic, 27-23. There's a six-year age gap between the two of them, and Federer has managed to keep their head-to-head that close. And, and one thing oh. about that, sorry to interrupt yeah. you for a second, one thing about the Djokovic uh, Federer head to head is that, um, you know, Djokovic is now leading, of course, and, you know, he deserves all the credit in the world for that. But, the, you know, in the podcast, I made counter arguments for each argument that I made, for most of the arguments I made. And, the, and you know, the counter argument for, you know, the Djokovic head to head, I think I believe I did mention this in the podcast was, you know, Djokovic took over the head to head lead against Federer, I believe, in 2016. So at that point, you know, Federer is almost turning 35 years old. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I yeah, and, I agree. I think. And know. the one thing about and the one thing about the weak error argument, you know, no one is sitting here and saying that you know, the, uh, the guys that Federer faced are better than you know Murray and Wawrinka and and, and uh, facing Nadal um, and Djokovic. But what I what I what, it, what the argument is is that when you look at guys like Davidenko and now Bandian, two guys who didn't win slams, but two guys who were exceptionally talented. Look at Safin. You look at Roddick. Um, you look at Agassi. These are all guys who were insanely talented and still, you know, very, very, very strong players. The point is that to diminish Federer's opposition as if as if these players are weak, that's where I see the problem. I'm not saying 
that this is the same level as you saw between with the players between 2010 and 2015 uh, or 2010 to 2020. But the point is the, the players Federer still played were pretty good. And some of these guys would have had more slams if Federer wasn't around. Obviously, the, the number one that comes to mind is, is Roddick. But I'd also put Davidenko there as well because there was a two-year period where Davidenko just kept running to Federer in ev- like nearly every single Grand Slam, a lot of times in quarterfinals and semifinals. And, better, and he pushed Federer, but Federer beat him every time. Um, so... Yeah, no, I, I think that's, a, again, a completely fair point. And anytime you point to Roger Federer, uh, you know, uh, one of the nuanced distinctions people can make, although I'm starting to believe it less and less as their careers go on, and this is not to be disrespectful to Roger. This is just to speak to how good Novak Djokovic is at everything. Um, but, you know, a distinction that I think right now, if you wanted to make this case where you say, hey, Novak Djokovic is the greatest player on hard courts ever, Rafa Nadal, the greatest clay court player ever, and this is, by the way, all on the men's side, uh, and Roger Federer is the greatest grass court men's player of oh, all yeah. time. Like okay. that, if you, that's the distinction where you want to leave things right now, I think that's completely fair because again, you look at Roger Federer, a hundred and one and thirteen at Wimbledon over the course of his career, eighty nine percent win percentage. By the way, he has over one hundred wins at two different majors. I mean, that's just absurd. It's really absurd. Like, I I cannot emphasize that enough. There is only one Roger Federer, folks. Enjoy him while it lasts. A lifetime 362 and 59 at the majors. I mean, that's just a career 86 win percentage. I mean, countless, what, 28 Masters titles as well. You know, the fact that he's been number one in, I think, what, two different decades. It's just... Guy's a beast, and so you know, you have props to him. Yes, if and obviously, you know, beyond what he's done off of the court as well, transcended it as a celebrity, as a star. You know what he's done in terms of the highest grossing, uh, generating athletes, uh, regardless of if it's tennis or not tennis. All of the endorsements he gets, all of this still matters, right? And so uh, these are all. Uh, off-court elements to his greatness that should factor into his case as being the greatest male tennis player of all time. But, yes, um, if unless you have anything to add, I'm ready to hear the case for Rafa. Yeah, the only thing I was going to add is, you know, for the Masters 1000 titles, what any Federer fan would say, is, and they have said it to me quite often, is, um, you know, what if there was more Masters 1000 titles on grass? When, when I say more, what if there was any? Masters 1000. What if there was two every year? Where would Federer be right now as far as Masters 1000 titles? So I guess my point in saying this is that when you, and we'll get into it with Nadal and Djokovic, when you look at the this argument, you know, it's very, it's not simple. It's a very complex argument. There's a, you know, a ton of nuance involved when trying to figure this out. Moving on to Nadal. Uh, first and foremost, he has the single greatest dominance of any surface of any player um, ever. His dominance on clay is unprecedented. 12 French Open titles resounding. He's 12 and one against Roger Novak at the French Open. 12 and one. That's absurd. He's 93 and two overall. It took Soderling in 2009 and Djokovic in 2015 to beat him. And in 2015, we, I think we all know Djokovic was having his best year. Nadal was not having his greatest year. Not to take anything away from Djokovic, but anyone watching that match knows that Nadal was not at his best. Um, he has 25 matches, 1,000 titles in clay. And then in clay court finals, he is 59-8 and eight in clay court finals. And there was a period between 2003 and 2015 where I believe he won 52 clay court semifinals in a row. 
52 in a row. I mean, that's just mind boggling. So that's the first argument for Nadal. Nadal dominance over clay on clay is greater than what Federer or Djokovic has done on their best respective surfaces by a lot. Um, beating can Nadal, I, just, can sure. I quickly interject on that? Yeah. Yeah, so just to add to that point, I had someone once text me, justifiably, and you talk about Rafael Nadal just starting with him on clay. Obviously, it goes without saying, greatest male uh, tennis player on clay in history. You look at his record at the French Open, and it's laughable. You know, 93-2 and two is literally laughable. That's just, it's an unbelievable accomplishment. What, he's won, I think, eight out of the last nine, and you add in the four on top of that, so 13 of the last, like, 15 French Opens. Or what is it, 13 or is it 12? 12 of the uh, last 12, 15. 12. Yeah, 12 of the last 15. That's just ridiculous. And, like, you look back over the course of history and what are the dynasties, even team, like, comparison-wise that you can uh, make an association with. And you're like, okay, Russell Celtics, sure. Uh, that's the, like, that's they, the first one I was going to say. Yeah, they won that many titles. Or even, you know, you want to make the comparison to Jordan and the Bulls. Like, you could argue it's better than that because it's over the course of 15 years that he's been that dominant. And, yeah, he had a knee knee injury, but there was no baseball retirement. There was no years off. It's just year after year after year. And there's this really fun video. Rafa did this interview at Wimbledon, and I've referenced it before. But he starts talking about his clay court seasons, how many losses he suffered over, like, the course of 10 years. And he goes, you know, 2008, I didn't lose. Like 2009, didn't lose. Like 2010, I lost one Soderling. Like, and it's and it's just ridiculous to hear him be like, "Yeah, I can name the seven losses I've suffered on clay in my career." And you're just like, "This guy is a one of a kind specimen." I would say if Roger Federer is the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, I mean, is Nadal, I don't know if Nadal's the Russell, uh, but I mean, you could make the case he's the Michael Jordan because when he plays, he just he he uh, especially I mean on clay, the Michael Jordan of clay. You know, when I think of Nadal, you know, I'm a Philadelphia guy. I think of Iverson in the sense of the guy's just going to throw his body out there no matter what for as long as he has to. It doesn't matter what you throw at him. He is never going to stop. Uh, So that that would be my, like, sports, not as far as achievement, of course, because Iverson really never won anything. But as far as how they both approach the game, that's, that's what comes to mind for me. Yeah, no, uh, again, I, Nadal's just done a little bit more winning, right? So that's that's the tough part, but not to be rude to you. Um, right, yeah. right, no, it's okay. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the thing. So Nadal, exceptional on the clay. And yeah, that's, of course, where any argument for him starts, to be that good on a surface for that long in your career. I mean, it's just silly. Yeah, it, it really, it really is. Um, what were you going to say your friend texted at you one time? Oh, uh, so no, that's what I was going to say is he texted me and asked me, or he says, like, is Nadal on at the French Open the greatest sporting accomplishment in history? Oh, the other ones he okay. compared to, you know, Phelps at the 08 Olympics, right, when he won, what was the eight gold medals? That was just absurd. Um, but I mean, I'm looking at this right now. Guess Rafa Nadal's career record. And remember, this career spans 15 years. Guess his career record on clay. I mean, it's like, I mean, I've, I've looked it up recently. I believe it's about like 482 and 39. Is that right? Four, first of all, good for you to get one of the numbers exactly right. 436 and 39. A 92% win percentage. But 39 losses over the course of 15 years, that means he is literally losing twice a year on clay. Considering at least a third of the season is on clay, that I'm I'm sorry to swear, I'm not trying to get you in trouble with your clients, but that's f-ing absurd. 
<laughs> it is absurd. Um, so the so he and and let's see. So he's had about thirty nine divided by. If, let's see. So what I'm calculating is he's lost twice to Federer on clay. I believe he's lost to Novak seven times. He's lost to Fonini three times. He's lost the team three times. So six, 13, 15, so like 15 of those 39 losses are to four players. Um, and just over the course, like no one, no one has really been able to figure out in clay. I don't know if it's the greatest of all time uh, achievement, but I, I'd have to think more about it um, and comparing to other sports. But at the same time, I mean, it's no doubt beating a doll in clay has proven to be the single toughest thing to do in tennis probably ever. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. And it's just like watch watch the tennis. What's the recipe? You tell me. If Novak Djokovic can't do it, and that was what was so crazy, right? Is in 2011 when Djokovic was really going off. You know, early in the year, he beats Nadal. Uh, I believe he beat him in Madrid uh, during that season. I believe he beat. And what year? Uh, uh, 2011, I believe he beats oh, yeah. him in Madrid. Beat him everywhere. He, Indian yeah, Wells, Miami, Madrid, and Rome. Yeah, beats him in Rome as well, exactly. But I'm talking, you know, particularly on clay. Um, and right. it felt at that point like, oh, is this a flashpoint? Is this where, you know, Novak Djokovic begins to make his push? And, you know, this sort of can get into the rest of your argument for Rafa because there was also the line of thinking of, oh, Rafa started to injure his knee, and is Rafa going to be able to even play for the next five, ten years the way he was able to from 05 to 2010 because, as you mentioned, just how physical he made the game, how much wear and tear there is on his body. And the fact that you look back now and, you know, he ended 2019 as the number one player in the world. He ended 2017 as the number one player in the world. He's won five Grand Slams over the past three seasons. I think the jury's out. Yeah, like he's going to be able to play deep into his 30s. Yeah, it it certainly seems like that right now. And he he certainly has the most to worry about just because of the way that he plays and how much force he puts on his knees. Um, but to get into the additional arguments here is his dominance over Roger for so many years. I mean, heading into 2017, the head to head was 23, 11 Nadal. And, you know, for so many years, everyone's proclaiming that either the greatest of all time is Roger or Rafa. And what, you know, got so many people stuck was, well, wait a second, how can Roger be the greatest of all time? And there's this guy who's beaten him 23 out of 34 times. It's really tough to argue that. Um, for, for a lot of people, it was really tough to make that argument. Um, in 2008 and 2009, Nadal just ripped off three huge wins against Federer. And this was after Federer's huge stretch of dominating the tournament. 2008, he beats him in the French Open, destroys him in, in three sets. And Federer won four games, and he beats him in the epic Wimbledon final. And then he comes back at the beginning of the next year in 2009 and beats him in the Australian Open final, and the fifth set really wasn't that close. I believe it was 6-2. And um, just over the last, um, you know, 15 years, Nadal really has had Federer's number overall before 2017. Since 2017, Federer has kind of turned things around a bit. So, but overall, Nadal's record over Federer cannot be overlooked. Um, So the next argument would be Nadal's fighting spirit. I mean, a a lot of problems... For tennis players is you know they just don't have that resilience that Nadal has they just can't put in the necessary effort point in and point out every single match every single match every single set throughout the week throughout the year it, it just you just don't see it you just never see that level of determination Nadal really never gives up on any point and we've and I've talked on my podcast before 
about how even Federer and Djokovic, they'll be down 5-1 in a set and they'll get to the next set. They'll kind of, you know, back off and just get ready for the next set. You will never see that from Nadal, ever. Um, One big argument for Nadal is that, you know, what are the biggest tournaments, the Grand Slams? He's one behind Federer right now. I would be shocked if he doesn't end up with a couple more French Opens. I mean, who knows with the way the world is moving along right now. But let's assume at some point we get back to some sense of normalcy. Nadal, Nadal is probably going to win a few more French Opens. I, I have a hard time imagining him not doing that. Overall, he is 19-10 and 10 in Grand Slams against Federer and Djokovic. He uh, is 9-6 and six against Djokovic and 10-4 and four against Federer. Now, the counter-argument to this is, oh, well, most of these are at the French Open. Well, the counter-argument to that would be is, well, it's still a Grand Slam. You still show up, you still play, and Nadal is winning these matches. Um, so Nadal's dominance over Federer and Djokovic in Grand Slams definitely needs to be considered. Um, the next big argument for Nadal is, look what he did in 2010. He won three slams on three different surfaces. And then he was able to win. Uh, he's been able to win multiple times French Open and Wimbledon in the same season. Uh, Djokovic nor Federer has been able to do that. So the argument you always hear from Nadal is, well, he's just he's just about the clay course. And that's obviously not true. Between 2006 and 2011, every year he played Wimbledon, he made the final. The only year he didn't play was 2009, um, which was after that 2008 epic final. Um, but every year he, he, he showed up, he was in the final. He has more. He has more U.S. Opens than Djokovic, which is very interesting to think about. You know, Djokovic is known as the hardcore specialist, which he is. But still, Nadal has four U.S. Opens, and Djokovic only has three. Um, so to say that Nadal is all about the clay courts is just patently false and and just very easy to disprove. Uh, the guy's game has. He's been able to adapt his game to all surfaces. I mean, if you look at that 2010 U.S. Open, I mean, the guy was just on fire especially with his serve. He was going huge with his serve, which I'm not sure why he hasn't continued that throughout his career, but he, in that tournament in particular, he went huge off the serve. Um, and the final argument for Nadal is, uh, you know, he has the most Davis Cup titles of all of them by far. He also is the only one of the three who has won the Olympic title in singles. He also has the Olympic title in doubles as well. And I think there's something to be said for Nadal's commitment to his country throughout all of these years despite maintaining an extremely uh, rigorous schedule. Yeah. So those were, those were the arguments for Nadal. Yeah, no, I think you made that quickly. The only other, you know, I think you made that perfectly. The things I would add again for Federer, I mentioned it, 224 and 123 against the top 10. That's a 64.6 win percentage. For Rafa, he's 171 and 92, 65% win percentage. You look at his peak years, you know, 2013, he had 23 top 10 wins. That's absurd. That's more than Federer has had in any individual season. Uh, For Rafa, the fact that he averaged at least 10 top 10 wins from 2006 to 2013, just ridiculous. You know, you start talking about Rafa's four-year or five-year prime and what that looked like. You know, you probably say it's 08 to 11, and then you'll throw in 13 instead of 12 because of the knee tendonitis 
72.6 and 11.4 on the year. So, you know, he's winning 86% of his matches. He's playing about 17 events, maybe a little bit more, making 10 finals, winning six titles. You know, he does a little bit better than Roger. He averages 82 top, or he wins 82 top 10 matches over the course of that span. That's an average of 16.4 per year. I mean, the 15 Masters titles, eight finals in those 42 events, you know, just ridiculous. Now, of course, the blemish on Rafa's uh, resume, as you mentioned, no year end tour finals uh, titles and like that's such a minute blemish it's like well look at everything else he's done and in the grand scheme of things like does that really matter you know maybe it doesn't but in the grand scheme of who you're comparing him to, yes, you talk about the Olympic success he's had. It's worth mentioning, as you said, that he has not won the year-end finals. But obviously an outstanding career as well. And I, again, if that's the case you want to make, you you know, certainly you could maybe argue Djokovic at his best is better than Federer at his best on grass. No one can argue that any male tennis player has ever been better than Rafa Nadal and Clay. 100%. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not, All right. No question. Yeah. So I think we nailed that one. Give me my. Give me the next topic. Let's go to Novak Djokovic. If you're making the case for him, where does it start? Well, I think it starts with first of all the head-to-head right now against Nadal and Federer. For years, Nadal and Federer are considered the two greatest players of all time. Djokovic is now now has a winning head-to-head against both 29-26 against Nadal, 27 and 23 against Federer. Um, so. He started the head-to-head against Roger uh, six six and thirteen. Since then, he is twenty-one and ten. Mm-hmm. And against Rafa, he was four and fourteen, and he's twenty-five and twelve since. So that's combined at his lowest point. He was ten and twenty-seven combined, and then now ever since he is a combined forty-six and twenty-two against these guys. Okay, I want to stop. I want to stop you right there, real quick, because sure. yes, you just killed it. You knocked it out of the park uh, against his two biggest rivals through the duration of their primes. And keep in mind, Rafa Nadal only a calendar year older than Novak Djokovic. I know he feels a lot older than that, but only a calendar year uh, were they born apart. Maybe even a little less than that. I think it's eleven months for Novak Djokovic to have that sort of success against them during the prime of his career. For him to also go twenty-five and eleven against. Against an Andy Murray, for him to go, you know, seventeen and two against Chilich, sixteen and five against Ferrer, nineteen and six against Stan Wawrinka, twenty-five and three against Burdich, sixteen and two against Nishikori, you know, seventeen and six against Sanga, seventeen and zero against Gael Monfils. I yeah, Rafa and Roger. If you start looking through their career head to heads, they'll have some numbers like that as well. But no one puts up numbers against Roger and Rafa. Except for Novak Djokovic. He, I just think, I don't know how you can argue that over the past six years he hasn't been the best player, maybe even longer than that, probably since 2011, the past nine years win healthy. He has been definitively the best player in tennis, and he's been the best player in what is, in my opinion, the best era of tennis as well. Yeah, I agree 100%. He definitely has. There's really no way you can uh, dispute that. Um and that was one of the points I made in the podcast. So between 2010 and 2020, he's got the most Grand Slams of all of them. He's got the most Masters 1000 titles. He has the most titles. He has the most matches. He's got a winning head-to-head against both of them at the Slams. Um, and, you know, you mentioned Federer's top 10 opponents. Well, Novak has faced already in his career 212 top – or he has 212 top 10 wins. Federer has 224 
yet Federer has been on tour significantly longer, just showing that Djokovic has faced a very, very high level of opposition, harder than a uh, higher level of opposition than either Nadal or Federer have faced. Um, and, you know, if you look at a lot of his slam finals, he's facing the best players along the way. So it's very clear throughout Novak's career, he's playing at a high level, very high consistent level, but he's doing so against, against the best players. Um, and so that, that's definitely one of the main arguments. You know, Novak is, of course, the only one who has four slams held at once, you know, between uh, 2015 and two, 2015 Wimbledon and 2016 French Open. He won all four in a row. Uh, so neither Federer nor Nadal has won that. Um, you know, the counter argument there, I mean, I'm sure, you know, Rod, Federer fans have said on Twitter when I posted that, that, hey, look, well, if Federer had not, if Federer had been able to face Andy Murray in the French Open final in the years that he was able to make all four uh, slam finals, which was um, 2006 and 2007, well, then maybe Federer would have been able to do it as well. But look, that's not the reality. Djokovic was able to do it. Djokovic has all four slams. Um, and uh, he, Djokovic had all four slams at once, and he is the only one. Uh, who has done that? Um, so, yeah. Overall, I mean, I mean that record between 2010 and 2020 is is pretty resounding. Um, his dominance over the tour during that time. Sure, there was a season here or there where he wasn't, you know, at his peak. But look, it's a 10 year period, and there's really no there's really no debating, like you said, that during this greatest era, which is you know during this period, that Novak has been the uh, the most dominant player now. I think what people will argue in in response is, look, uh, it applies more to Federer. I mean, look, Federer's uh, almost six years older than Djokovic. So I think that's the argument you're going to hear from Federer fans. But what I would counter to that is while that I think that certainly plays a factor, there's no doubt that plays a factor. I mean, Roger still looked pretty good. I mean, it's not like Roger Federer has completely fallen off the face of the earth during these years. He still produced some great tennis. But Novak's tennis has been great more consistently. And the perfect example, I think, for this was in 2015. So the time I always think about is the Wimbledon of 2015. Federer gets into the final, beating Andy Murray. And Federer looks so good in that match. And they get into the Wimbledon final. Djokovic is having his best year. Federer is up a break in the first set, loses the first set, wins the second set in a very tight tiebreaker. I think uh, Novak lost having seven set points. But then you go into the third set and fourth set, and Djokovic was just too consistent. He was just too consistent for Federer. I really think that's what we've seen in, in Federer and Djokovic's matches. So since 2010, I believe Djokovic is 10-2 and two in majors against Federer. Um, and that's a pretty outstanding record for Novak. Yeah. You know, I, again, the numbers that stand out to me, and I apologize, I'm not doing this just uh, because I can't, I, I'm just doing this because I can't help it. Um, you look at this number in particular, and I'm going to repeat it again. Roger Federer, through his career, 224 and 123, and again, his career, ATP, I think he played his first ATP match in 1998. Uh, Novak Djokovic played his first match in, I guess, 2003, but really didn't start going on tour until 05, 06. Uh, over the course of his career against top 10 players. And again, Roger Federer was, I believe, 224 and 123. 
Rafa Nadal, also really good against top 10 players. Not quite as good as the other guys. He is at 172-92. and 92. Novak Djokovic, in a shorter time frame, 212-97. and 97. That is a 68.6 record against top 10 players. He set the era single season record with 31 top 10 wins in 2015, which, by the way, broke his 2012 and 2013 record in which he had 24 top 10 wins. Here's his span of top 10 wins from 2011 through 2016. 21, 24, 24, 19, 31, 21. In 2011, in a seven-tournament span, Novak defeated then-world number one Nadal in the finals of five events. Indian Wells, Miami, Madrid, Rome, Wimbledon. I mean, whether you want to take... And what's crazy is, as great as that 2011 season was, where he starts the year undefeated through the French Open, that may not have even been his best season. That 2015 season might have been his best. Because, again, as Mm -hmm. you mentioned, 2015 is the year where... uh, Or, at at 2015 through the start of 2016, he ends up capturing all four Grand Slams. I believe he wins what is still the record six uh, Masters events in a season. He makes eight finals and eight Masters. He wins six of them. Again, also won the World Tour Finals in 2015, which he did not in 2011. So again, well, like I said, I'm not trying to get you in trouble here, uh, but that's no, just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's just yeah. It's just like, come on, like what what are we doing here? Like I, with all due respect to Roger Federer, who again, the longevity, he's the cream of this argument. You want to talk about sustained excellence? I this is where, and I'm a LeBron James guy too. If you can't tell, but LeBron making eight finals in a row is ridiculous. Novak Djokovic going 24, 24, and 31 top 10 wins in a you know a five year span and being above an eight whatever for five years in a row it's just nuts yep yeah and so i like so i guess this gets to the next question and again by the way you did an excellent job of laying out the case folks the reason i wanted to give uh have nick on the podcast today is because again this is a topic i think all of us enjoy these are the sort of points you're making on the podcast so if you're intrigued (laughs) listeners uh please go check out all the work and you know i'm gonna end up keeping you longer than uh, longer than I promised, but you know, okay. in terms of in general, uh, of all of the arguments we've discussed, and if you have any more mm-hmm. Djokovic points, fe- please feel free to say them. Which is sure. the one that resonates the most with you? Yeah, it's a great question. Many people have reached out to ask me that question, and it's something that requires a lot of thought. I think there's a lot of nuance. I want to say mm-hmm. the first thing I would say is I don't think there is a definitive answer right now. What I have told people is, look, if I need to Pick one player for my life to win a match on a random surface. I'm going to pick Djokovic. And let's look at it this way. So, you know, Djokovic is, you know, we look at Federer. He's the best at Wimbledon. But Djokovic has beaten him in three straight Wimbledon finals. Nadal's the best on clay. Djokovic has hung neck and neck with Nadal and clay um, over the years. He's the only one who's been able to beat him consistently on clay. I think when you look at Federer and Nadal, they have more holes in their game than Djokovic. Um, so putting the stats aside, just looking at their games objectively, Novak's game definitely has less holes. Now, that should the caveat to that should be that today's game is more predicated on baseline play, and Djokovic is just supreme at the baseline. His serve has become super solid over the years, whereas you know Nadal, you can attack him at the forehand side, go hard and deep to the forehand. Better, you can still get him on the backhand, still get him on the return. 
with Novak, there's really not that many places where you can attack attack him. Now, if we were having this conversation in the year 2002, it, it might be a little bit different, but I still think Novak's game would transition very well. I think at the end of the day, if you look at the, the stats of it all, look, Federer, you know, Federer has the most titles, the most slams, most weeks at number one. So he has all of that right now, and you can't deny that. But Novak is, is right behind him, and so is Rafa. I mean, there, there's, you know, who's to say that Rafa's not going to end up with 23 slams, Federer's at 20, and Novak's at 20 just because of the French Opens. Um, but what I will say, as I mentioned before, if I need one player to win me one match for my life, I don't know what the surface is going to be. Uh, I'll, I'll definitely pick Djokovic. Yeah, and I think that, and I've stated this on the podcast before, I think for a lot of people our age, um, you know, people would say, oh, you're biased because, you know, when you've been watching closely, he's been doing most of his winning, and that's fair, uh, but the numbers don't lie. And, you know, I saw some stat that through, you know, all whatever age Djokovic is now, they all had the same amount of slams that Djokovic does. Um, and certainly, you know, given this coronavirus pandemic, we don't know what the effect of it will be. Will it affect the slam count moving forward? Certainly, and that's such a minimal concern. Um, but there's just no denying over these past 10 years. And, you know, you can't make the case for Roger Federer with his longevity and then turn around and say, yeah, but he was really old, so Djokovic's wins over him shouldn't count like that's just ridiculous that's a loop that's a hole in logic that's just that's not that's a it's you, you can't argue like that that's just ridiculous because um, you could also I, not to interrupt you but you could also because some people want to do it the other way oh well Federer, yeah. Djokovic was only you know 20 years old in 2006 Federer's wins against him are irrelevant no no you play the match these guys are still world-class players they, they count yeah guess what if Roger doesn't want to lose to Novak anymore he can retire but he doesn't want to do that. He says, by going out on the court, to your point, he says, I am putting myself out there. I'm confident in my level of play. I think I can go out and win. And guess what? He's, for the most part, been proven very, very correct. Um, but I agree with you. I just think the body of work, the level of success, the degree of success, the uh, strength of schedule, I suppose, which just speaks to how difficult, how you know, the strength of the era. I, I, I happen to lean towards Novak Djokovic right now, but also with the caveat, as you said, that none of their career Careers are over yet, so it's really too soon to make any sort of judgment in general. Um, all right, last things down the home stretch here, and then I'll let you go. The things sure. about the big three discussion that you found gets the people, uh, the most people upset. Um, the thing. Oh, I, I wrote it down here. <laughs> Let me just pull it back up. Um, no, that's because I'm sure there's so many, right? Yeah, I'm just trying to remember what I had wrote. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, I mean, I think the first thing is. Honestly, any stat or observation or argument that is against the player that whoever is reading it prefers, um, as if, you know, none of these players can be criticized. I mean, I really think there's people in each fan base who have a difficult time putting criticism um, upon any of them. And it's okay. These are not perfect players. Uh, you know, they're close. Let's, don't get me wrong, but they each of them still, you know, they're still human. They still have flaws in their games. So that'd be the first thing. Um, so uh, I can give you examples uh, for each player from each fan base that people have been upset with me. I mean, at some point or another, uh, people from every single one of these fan bases have said I don't <laughs> like their favorite player, or that I hate their favorite player, or that this account is biased toward the other player. Oh, this is a Djokovic fan account, this is a Federer fan account, the Dahl fan account. Um, I mean, I had one person in particular was upset I wasn't posting enough Nadal pro Nadal stats. 
And I showed him, I, I took screenshots of, tw and he kept, you know, really going after me until I screenshotted 12 tweets and I sent them to him and I had not, I didn't hear from him since. Um, but let's, I'll tell you one from me. So, um, let's see here. So one thing with Federer is I mentioned, this is actually on my own personal Twitter account a while ago. I talked about how this is more technical, but from Federer's, and I actually made a video about this yesterday, but from Federer's perspective, his backhand technique, you know, he's Federer, he's made it work, but his backhand technique has certainly hurt him against Nadal and Djokovic. There, in my mind, there's almost no question of that. You know, if you look at his racket face when he when he turns, the racket face is pretty much completely open in the back, meaning the strings are facing up. And at the end of the day, you're trying to get your strings forward. You compare that to Novak's backhand, where his strings in the back are what you would call on edge. So if you were standing on the other side of Novak, you would see the edge of his racket. It's a much more efficient swing. Now, against the 50th ranked player in the world for Federer, it doesn't matter at all. But against Nadal and Djokovic, it does. And when I mentioned that, people really came after me saying, how dare you criticize Federer's backhand? How dare you criticize his technique? You know, so that was something for Federer. For Djokovic, um, you know, recently I had argued that Djokovic, um, I had argued that uh, Federer in 2017 won the Shine Open and was successful in the Shine Open because, you know, he had made great changes to his game to deal with Nadal. Um, you know, going into 2017, in their last eight outdoor hardcourt matches, Federer was four and four against Djokovic in their most recent eight, but he was one and seven against Nadal. So Nadal was really the one who was giving him trouble on the outdoor hardcourt. And he turned that around and, you know, a few Djokovic fans had said, well, you know, it's, it's, you know, Novak wasn't there and that's why Federer won. And I said, look, it obviously helps anyone for Novak not to be there. But at the same time, we can't deny the fact that Federer also made improvements to his game. Um, so those are the three examples. Those are three of various examples from all three players. And look, I respect people's opinions on the account, but what I do tell people, if you're going to use your derogatory language and insult other people, then I'm going to take you off. I'm going to block you. Like, I really have no patience for that. We're talking about three tennis players who none of us, you know, almost none of us will ever meet ever or talk to, you know, and we're insulting each other about it. To me, that's just unnecessary. Like, have a, have a civil conversation about it. Make your points. Try not to use personal attacks. And that's what I think the account should be about. And if people can do that and people can be respectful, then I'm really excited about how the account can continue to grow. Yeah. No, and I know, again, as a fan speaking, uh, uh, seeing what, you know, the statistics themselves, I love them. And, of course, half the vitriol you receive on tennis Twitter is half of, you know, the reason to stay off of it. But there's I would say it's 10 percent the reason to stay off of it. But 90 percent of what you get to is so much better. I completely agree with you. But I will say there are vicious fans out there and perhaps none more so than the fans of Federer, Djokovic and Nadal, particularly when they think you're comparing or slighting one of them in comparison to the other and so exactly. uh, it's definitely a fascinating dynamic well then my last question for you again for our listeners and we sort of talked about it at the beginning a where can they find all of the work b what should they be expecting from you moving forward so yeah they can find all the work on the big three twitter account um so i also have an instagram page where i've started to post some charts and some graphs that just gives you a better visual of what's happening and uh, just taking some of the stats around Twitter and just giving it a visual form. And then for um, 
the podcast, I mean, I'm just going to post it on Twitter. I'm going to keep posting them on Twitter, but you can find it. I mean, I think Apple and Spotify are the two most popular. Um, so it's just the big three podcasts. These these are with the number three. Though the Instagram page is with the the word three, just because I couldn't get uh, I couldn't have access to the uh, account if I had used the number. Um, and then what was the second part of the question? Sorry. The second part. No. Again, what can they expect moving forward? Yeah, what they can expect moving forward is just more. I you know I put. I feel like I've exhausted every single stat that is imaginable uh i'm sure there's more that i can look into but i feel like i've really run the gamut with the stats but there's going to be a lot more talking about technique and strategy um and then just talking maybe also talking about looking back uh into the the matchups and the rivalries figuring out you know what were the best matches what were the highest moments what were the lowest the uh the lowest moments yeah, no, no. And again, there are so many different elements to this big three discussion. So many, whether it's looking through some of their best matches, whether it's looking through, again, uh, the nuances of the tactics behind all of the rivalries, why I happen to think it's a perfect, uh, it's, I guess, cylinder's the wrong word, but a perfect uh, circle. Um, I don't know the word I'm looking for. A Venn diagram, maybe, of overlapping <laughs> of strengths of weaknesses, yeah, yeah. we'll say. Because, you know, for Rafa, it's just he's perfectly constructed to beat Roger Federer, right? Because it's just lefty forehand, heavy topspin, into the backhand, into the backhand, into the backhand. I can tell you exactly what every point in that match is going to look like. Now, the only way to beat Rafa Nadal, and this sounds impossible to say, is to wear him down, is to get him tired, is to understand, yeah, he's going to be using a battering ram, but if you can slowly but surely find enough cracks in that battering ram, you can somewhat break down Rafa Nadal. And guess what? There's one human in the world who can do that, and that's Novak Djokovic, who can absorb that pace, who can redirect it, who has the perfect backhand to expose Rafa's flaws or to expose, you know, or I guess take advantage of the things Rafa's trying to do. You know, Djokovic can take time away from Rafa. Now, there's also only one way to beat Novak Djokovic, and that's to tree. That's to play out of your mind. That's to be just saying, I'm fearless. I can hit him off the court. I am not afraid of this little skinny Serbian. Uh, And there's only one person in the world with that mindset and the skills to do it. I guess two people, really. It's Roger Federer and a treeing Stan Wawrinka. And, like, that's why it's it's the perfect circle, right? Because one is perfectly – is better suited to beat the other uh, than the rest of them. And it's just – it makes for such a fascinating dynamic. It makes for such a fascinating rivalry. It's driven interest in the sports for more than 15 years. And, of course, it makes for fantastic tennis as well. And so, Nick, again, a huge shout-out to you for pursuing this project. I really am a massive fan. Um, And, yeah, you know, obviously we would – we are always happy to have you back on this podcast. So any final thoughts before we wrap? Yeah, I mean, do you mind if I get into something a little more extended that I have oh, previously I, failed to mention? I no, I I not only do I mind, I actually insist that you do. Okay, so I actually was thinking about this this morning and actually tweeted about it. Um, you know, like I think one thing to think about for anyone listening with these players and how to beat them. How do you beat these guys? You know, let's say let's pretend that you know you can pretend that you know you're in the shoes of one of the three, but you can also pretend you're. Sitsipas or Medvedev or one of these slightly lower ranked players who's trying to, you know, get the best of them. So, you know, one of my tennis coaches growing up always, you know, told me, look, you're going to play people who are better than you. And when you're playing the big three, they're better than you. And when you are trying to beat people who are better than you, you know, you have two options. One is to rise to their level 
And, you know, Wawrinka obviously has done this on numerous occasions. But then your other option, you do have another option, which is to try to bring down their level. So if I'm playing at an eight and Djokovic and I'm playing and Nick Nemiroff is playing Djokovic in some fantasy world, uh, I can either try to bring my game to a 10 or 11, unlikely. But what I could do is try to take my game from a take his game from a 10 and bring it down to a seven. So mm -hmm. I gave a few examples of how you could do that with each player. So the first thing with Federer would be you just got to extend the rally. You've got to, you know, the longer the rally, the less likely Federer is to win the point. The second thing would be you've got to exploit his backhand. You've got to go after his backhand. You've got to go wide to his backhand. You've got to go high to his backhand, as you mentioned. For Nadal, when he uses that deep return positioning, you can't let him get away with it. You've mm -hmm. got to go to, you've got to go to the net. You've got to serve and volley a little bit. Um, go hard and flat to the forehand. Exploit that weakness. Bring that forehand level of play down. That's his biggest weapon, but there is a way to bring it down. And then the third would be go to the net. Uh, you know, you're you're and I would say that applies to all three. You're playing against three of the greatest baseliners of all time. Is it likely that going to the net will work? No. But why lose over and over again at the baseline? If I'm David Ferrer and I'm 0 and 17 against Roger Federer. And I just keep trying to win from the baseline over and over and over. At some point, Ferrer should have just said, look, I'm going to go to the net. This is not working. I need to go to the net. And then for Novak, first thing is you got to go deep. And you got to go deep and heavy down the middle of the court. Um, Medvedev and Simone have both shown that Djokovic can be a little bit vulnerable. You can bring down his level of play at the middle, in the middle of the court. Um, he's not able to produce the angles. Also, they've shown that if you can go with a little bit less pace, then that also helps as well. Um, he's not able to absorb and feed off his opponent's pace. The second thing for Novak, like with Rafa and Roger, go to the net. Uh, you know, the guy's a great defender, but you're much, much, you have a much better angle on the court from on top of the net. You know, from the baseline, you have like about 20 degrees of angle that you can use. When you get on top of the net, you have a, if you're really, really close to the net, like we're talking about a couple feet away from the net, you almost have about 130 degrees of volleying potential. So I'd rather take my chances with that against Novak than what I'm doing at the baseline. And then the the other things would be get Novak to the net. You know, we're in a we're in an era where the baseline is is where everyone plays from, and Novak is very comfortable from the baseline. He's solid at the net. Don't get me wrong, he's solid, but he's not as good as he is at the baseline. So maybe he's a, an eight at the net, and but he's at a, a 14 at the baseline. I'd rather have him at the net and take that level of play down. And then the last thing I would say is use variety. You know, when you're playing Novak, the guy can get into an insane rhythm. I mean, his strokes are so repeatable and dependable that he can get into an insane rhythm. So give him slices. Give him one ball that's high. Give him one ball that's low. Me in particular, I play tennis regularly with a guy who he alternates between hitting heavy. I'm a pretty consistent player myself. Uh, I would say I'm only slightly worse than Djokovic. But uh, – <laughs> Uh, he also, when I play him, he gives me one high ball, one low ball, one ball that's deep, one ball that's short. And it really throws me off my rhythm and I can't get in a good rhythm. And it's very difficult to play and it keeps me on my toes. And no one's saying that these are guaranteed to work. In all likelihood, they're not going to work. But it's worth anyone's benefit who's playing these guys, you know, to try and use it, even when they're playing each other at times, to try and use these strategies to take the, their level of play and bring it down as opposed to trying to, you know, pretend that you're going to be 
uh, Novak Djokovic. I mean, I'm sure you remember that match from 2012 where Rasal beat Nadal. And he just played out of his mind. Um, mm-hmm. And it, yeah, it was at Wimbledon. Yeah, right. And like, you know, you, you can't rely on doing it. Unless you're Wawrinka, it's not going to happen. Um, so on most, on most instances. So maybe you can try to implement some of that. But at the same time, you also really have to actively work and try to bring down their level of play. Yeah, no, I, I think that's completely fair. Or like, yeah, you think of the times the Istamins or the Stakovskis of the world or the Soderlings. Yeah, they just slap their way to victory. I mean, yeah, it requires a little bit of luck, requires a little bit of skill. Um, but it is all, you know, again, I think we can say there is no product outside of maybe Serena in, in, across all of tennis. Serena maybe I think gets the best ratings out there. But, you know, there's a reason people always tune in for Djokovic, for Federer, Nadal, because it's must-see tennis and because to beat them, them if you're their opponents you're going to have to bring out your best tennis and they have raised the level of the game they've raised the level of attention it receives all the different things uh, obviously you know this will always be referred to in the history books as the big three era in AT, you know in men's tennis and so uh, it's a fascinating topic again and nick i appreciate you for taking the time to chat today again a massive fan of yours so a huge thank you for all you do for the tennis community we wish you luck and you know don't be a stranger we'd love to have you back on the show yeah thanks so much alex this was really fun i'd be more than happy to come back on at any time yeah awesome well then stay safe stay healthy and we will talk to you soon thanks so much have a good one Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with creator of the Big 3 Tennis Twitter account, Big 3 Tennis Podcast, Nick Nemiroff. Uh, It really is a fascinating project. Again, I'm such a big fan of his work. I know you fans will be too, so be sure to go check all of that out. And again, a big shout out to Nick for taking the time to chat with us today on the podcast. Uh, We apologize again. For the length of today's Friday mini break, a lot for us to talk about here at Cracked Rackets. And, you know, we were playing catch up a little bit this week because, again, you know, we had our Cracked Rackets open last weekend was such a delight. But, you know, because of that, we didn't have episodes on Monday or Tuesday this week mini break wise. Hopefully we made up for that with the double GSP, Gil Gross of Monday Match Analysis, Ben Rothenberg of No Challenges Remaining, and the New York Times joining us. Of course, this week on the mini break, we also had Bjorn Fratangelo on our Getting to the Point episode, as well as NJTL of Indianapolis Executive Director Dax Lowry, and then Cracked Interviews-wise, Sam Riffis, Oliver Crawford of the University of Florida men's tennis team. Uh, So hopefully we gave you your fix, but if you have missed any of our Cracked Rackets content, and of course there is so much of it, there are podcasts you can go back on. You know, I think all of our mini breaks hold up pretty well through this quarantine period. Uh, I also do think, you know, again, you look at these cracked interviews, we've gotten the chance to talk to people like Ashley Leahy, Alexa Graham, uh, Brianna Schvetz, uh, Elliot Spaziri, Gianni Ross, Will Blumberg, Tim Russell, Chris Woodruff. We've got a bunch of other good ones in the queue. Andrew Fenty, Jada Hart. Um, I mean, a lot of great conversations. Christian, Claire Liu, Dennis Kudla, Mitchell Kruger. Uh, we've, that has been, again, the silver lining for us is to get the chance to offer a platform to so many of these players who have so many things to say uh, during, of course, this extraordinary time in tennis. And so if you've missed any of the podcasts, Cracked Interviews, Great Shot Podcast, this podcast, the Inside Out Podcast, go like, rate, subscribe, review, share them with your friends. Uh, of course, if you've missed any of our YouTube content, be sure to go check out our YouTube channel. Hit that subscribe button. Hit in one. See our classics. Overserved. 
video interviews with BMS and Monica Pui. You don't want to miss any of that. You can find it all on our YouTube channel. And the reason you can find it there is because of the incredible work of our super producers, Max Flinger and Daniel Westhoff, who have a f*** of an editing job to do day in, day out. And they always manage to get the job done. So shout out to the two of them. Shout out again to our friends at Midwest Sports. Go to MidwestSports.com. Use that promo code CR15. And our friends at Aerobar as well to go get yourself a supply of the only tennis-specific energy bar out there. Go to Aerobar.com. Use the promo code CRACKED15 to get 15% off. And again, if you have missed any of our content, go to the website CrackedRackets.com. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. It's at CrackedRackets. I am at, at GreatShotPod if you want to slide into my direct messages. But with that being said, one more time for our wonderful guest, Nick Nemiroff, our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say, folks. That's the break, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.